Amen. This morning we are going to be uh, talking about the tabernacle and this, this, oh man, this, this beautiful picture of God coming to dwell with his people and, uh, and, and where God is, holiness is, right? Amen. And so we're going to see today in, in the description of the tabernacle and even as we get to the temple and all of these things that as we go further and further into where God is dwelling himself, there's less and less people that can approach him in that and uh, until we get to Jesus and Jesus came he died on the cross and the, the, the temple curtain was torn in two and because of Christ being our great high priest forever we now have full and complete access to a God who is oh so holy amen and so there's this I don't even know what to call it, but but the fact that we can come and that we can stand before this holy God and we can worship him and yet uh, the, the terror almost, not terror, but the fear of his holiness and yet the, the, the love that God has shown us allows us not to be afraid. And that we can come and that we can say, here I am. This is what this song is talking about. That we can stand in the majesty of God and not be fully consumed by his holiness and, and wrath because of Jesus Christ. That we can stand in God's majesty and see his love for us. And that we can declare our love for him instead. Amen. That we can worship him together as an unholy, uh, sinful people who are being made holy by a perfect, loving God through His Son and through His Spirit and by His Word. Amen? Let's worship Him this morning.
Holy Father, we worship you this morning. We thank you that you have come to us. Oh, so many times, God, that you, you are a God who pursues. You have come to dwell among your people and dwell in your people through the presence of your Holy Spirit in us who have put our faith in your Son who died for us and rose again that we one day, uh, Lord, will be with you. You will be our God. We will be your people and we will dwell together forever. Lord, we long for that day and we worship you in the presence of your majesty, uh, God, changed by your love. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, uh, good morning, Cross Point. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, yesterday, I had the opportunity to coach a couple of basketball games, uh, one, of them being, one of them being in um, probably one of the uh, loudest gyms I've ever been in. And so um, I'm perfectly healthy, but um, if my voice cracks, if it feels like I'm going through, it sounds like I'm going through some changes, um, <clears throat> that's not the case. Um, so just thank you for your grace. You can laugh, but just keep your laughter to yourself. Don't let me see it. All right. Um, if you have a Bible, get to the book of Exodus, uh, chapter uh, 25. We'll start in there and then we'll land in chapter 40 by the end. And while you're getting there, I want to share with you some vision as we're as we keep moving it forward into this calendar year, around Crosspoint, one thing we talk about is that we want to have a kingdom mindset as a church, that we're not out to build Crosspoint kingdom, but we're out to see uh, God's kingdom be built. And so we're not in competition with other churches that preach the good news and that are centered on Christ and teach the word of God as the word of God, but we're in partnership with them. And ultimately, uh, unfortunately, in our American culture, uh, of individualism. Sometimes we take that idea of individualism into the body of Christ, the large C church. But scripturally, we don't see this territorial kind of this uh, uh, individualistic mindset. Instead, what we see, for example, in Ephesians 4 is God's desire for unity in the body of Christ. Unity around some key doctrinal and biblical truth. Unity around a shared mission, if you will. So verses 1 through 6 in Ephesians 4 say this, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so the longer I go in ministry the more I am convinced and convicted of that truth, of that biblical truth. And I'm eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that, the God, that God has given to us. Too often in the body of Christ, it's, it's marked by divisions and petty uh, disagreements and splits over secondary matters, which lead to this really poor testimony to the world around us. So all of that to say is over the past nearly four years, I've developed a growing friendship with Tom Swanson, the pastor at Eureka Bible. We've met several times. We met regularly for conversation, prayer, um, just a mutually encouraging time for us. And at the same time, the Spirit has opened up some doors for Crosspoint and Eureka Bible to serve together. This is, there's been a kind of a spirit of cooperation among both of our churches. For example, we've done a, a missions event called Afflicted a couple of years ago, trying to raise some awareness of global issues that God's Word speaks of. Our student ministries have, have uh, done a series together before. Our student pastors of Eric and 
Their pastor's name is Aaron, but they share a relationship and a friendship there. It's encouraging to them. We've done a concert together. We just The Spirit's opened up some doors for us to serve together. Uh, we even um, support one of the same missionaries and some of the same organizations, missions-wise. So these cooperative ministries that have grown out of this understanding that we're like-minded when it comes to Scripture, uh, our interpretation of it, our approach to ministry of, of relationships and disciple-making and, and, and our desire to reach our community and our world, there's kind of a kindred spirit among us, if you will. And because of this, the idea has been growing for us to, okay, how can we explore ways in 2016 to better express that unity that we have within the body of Christ. The elder teams of both churches have gotten together a couple times to discuss and pray about that and and decided that the Lord is leading us to uh, proactively search for ways that we can serve and partner together, uh, at least in the coming year. Uh, We won't know exactly what those ideas are yet. If you have ideas, we'd love to hear those. But one of, we're exploring several of them, but one of the first ones that we're going to do is a shared Good Friday service together. I can't think of a better service, frankly, to be together, to see, well, let's sing together, let's remember the cross together, let's remember uh, the larger body of Christ and be together on that Good Friday um, as, as the large C church. So as the Lord opens up further opportunities, uh, we're going to try to s- say yes to those, seek the unity that Ephesians 4 speaks of, and, and seek to pursue the Great Commission, Great Commandment um, in greater ways in this coming year. So as a pastor, as your pastor, I'm excited about this. Uh, I'm trusting the Lord to lead and direct as, as, we, as we venture into this. Today, we'll see how the Spirit led the Israelites, and so I'm trusting the, the Spirit to continue to lead us. He's our chief shepherd, Jesus is, and so we're trusting in Him. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, feel free to let me know. Uh, I'd love to hear those. So today, we finish up in the book of Exodus. This three-year journey through Scripture uh, moves quickly, but in doing so, it gives us some, uh, some great pictures of the overarching story of uh, uh, that God has written to us, given to us from Genesis to Revelation. This morning, we're looking at the tabernacle of Moses, which is the primary subject of much of the book of Exodus. Then the next two weeks, we're in the book of Leviticus. That's typically where your Bible reading plan derails your year-long plan. Maybe it's already derailed, hopefully not, but Leviticus usually is that book. We'll get to that next week. Uh, I think you'll find it um, surprisingly applicable and, uh, and surprisingly how it points us to Christ and the cross and, and all of that. So today we're in the, the tabernacle looking at that. And so I want us to watch this video because it helps us see how the tabernacle fits into the story of Exodus as well as leads into Leviticus next week. And during this video, we're going to go ahead and take our offering. Um, so for those who call Crosspoint your church home, I just encourage you to give generously and faithfully. Again, not to build Crosspoint's kingdom but to build God's kingdom, to store up treasure in, in heaven, to, to see the good news expand and, and reach more, not just through this ministry, but through other local ministries and, and worldwide ministries that we support. So let me pray for that offering. We'll take it, watch the video, and we'll go from there. Father God, we thank you so much for an opportunity we have here to give back to you. We thank you that just the reminder that it is that, that as we give, that anything that's been given to us is by your grace. Uh, So thank you for being gracious to us. Uh, Father, help us to give cheerfully. Help us to give generously for your kingdom's sake. God, may your kingdom expand through what is given here, Lord. We want to say yes to you. Father God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.
the book of Exodus. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 through 18, which tell the foundational story of how God rescued the enslaved Israelites by confronting and defeating Pharaoh, while offering a way of escape through the blood of the Passover lamb. God then delivered his people by bringing them through the waters of the sea and then into the wilderness, where, surprisingly, they grumbled and complained. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus opens as Moses leads Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites the nation of Israel to enter into a covenant relationship. And here we reach another key moment in the biblical storyline, because this is picking up and developing God's promise to Abraham. So remember, from the book of Genesis, God promised that through Abraham's family, somehow he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And here we find out more. God says that if Israel obeys the terms of the covenant, covenant. They will be so shaped by God's laws and teaching and justice that they will become a kingdom of priests, which means that they will become God's representatives and show all of the other nations what God is truly like. Now, the people of Israel eagerly accept the offer, and so God's presence appears right on the top of Mount Sinai in the form of cloud and lightning and thunder. And Moses goes up as their representative, and God opens with the basic terms of the covenant, the famous Ten Commandments. These are like the basic terms of the agreement, how the Israelites and God are going to relate to each other. And then after this come another collection of commands which fill out the first ten in more detail. There are laws about Israel's worship, about social justice, how they are to live together, all shaping Israel into a nation of justice and generosity that's different from the other nations. So Moses writes down all of these laws and he brings them down to the people who, again, eagerly agree to enter into this covenant with God. And once they do so, God takes the relationship forward another step. He tells Moses that he wants his holy and divine and good presence to come and dwell right in the midst of Israel, which develops another aspect of God's covenant promises. So remember, after humanity's rebellion in the garden, it was access to God's presence that was lost. But now it's through the family of Abraham that God's presence is becoming once again accessible through this covenant relationship, and first with Israel, and then somehow one day to all nations. So what follows are seven chapters of detailed architectural blueprints about this sacred tent called the tabernacle. There's an outer courtyard with an altar, and then in the center there's a tent that has an outer room and then an inner room. And then inside the inner room, which is called the most holy space, is a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And there's angelic creatures over the top of it. It's the hot spot of God's presence. Now there's lots of detail in these chapters, and it's important to know that every piece has some kind of symbolic value. All of the flowers, the angels, the gold and the jewels, it all echoes back to the Garden of Eden, the place where God and humans live together in intimacy. And so the tabernacle is like a portable Eden, so to speak. It's the place where God and Israel can live together in peace, at least in theory, because right here something goes really, really wrong. Israel breaks the covenant. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the blueprints for the tabernacle, down below at the camp, the Israelites, they're losing patience. And so they ask Moses' brother Aaron to make for them a golden calf idol so they can worship it as the God who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. Now God's presence, it's right there on top of the mountain. They can see it. But here they are below, breaking the first two commands of the covenant they just agreed to. No other gods and no idols. 
Now, what follows is really important. God knows what's happening down below. And so he first invites Moses into his own anger and pain. And he tells Moses what he wants to do, just to wipe Israel out. But Moses intercedes by appealing to God's character. He says, first of all, destroying Israel would be going back on your covenant promises to Abraham. And then Moses appeals to God's reputation among the nations. What would they think if they see you destroying your own people? And so God accepts Moses' intercession, and he relents. And while he does bring his judgment on those who instigated the idolatry, he forgives the nation as a whole and promises to renew his covenant. And it's right here at this point in the story that God, for the first time, describes his own character to Moses. He says, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, abounding in covenant faithfulness. He forgives sin, but he will not leave the wicked unpunished. So we have this tension. God is full of mercy, but also he must deal with evil if he claims to be good. And above all, God is faithful to his promises, even though it means he knows he's committing himself to a people who are utterly faithless. And so after renewing the covenant with Israel, God commissions Moses to go ahead and build the tabernacle. And once again, we get five long chapters describing in detail the construction of the tabernacle. And it all comes together in the final chapter where the tabernacle's finished. God's glorious divine presence comes and hovers over the tent, and our hopes are high. And so Moses, he goes right up to enter into the tent, and he can't. He actually can't go in. And that's how the book ends. It's really surprising, but not really if you think about it. You can see now how much Israel's sin has damaged the relationship with God in more ways than we realized. So the book opened, remember, with Pharaoh's evil threatening Israel and threatening God's covenant promise. But now as the book ends, Israel has become its own worst enemy. It's their sin that's threatening the future of the covenant. And so the question as the book closes is how is God going to reconcile this conflict between his holiness and his goodness and his presence with the sinful corruption of his own covenant people? The solution to that problem is what the next book is about. But for now, that's the book of Exodus. All right, so the Bible begins with the book of Genesis. And in those first, chap first two chapters, we see that God was near and present with his people. And the people were near to the Lord. They had this close communion with God. They welcomed God's word. They, they worshiped the Lord for being their maker and creator. There was harmony. But then in Genesis 3, the people were rebel. And since then, there's disharmony. There's discord between people and God. Separation has occurred. And we see, we see people continually attempt to, to try to bridge that gap, bridge that separation in various ways. But none of man's ways restore that communion between people and a holy God. What is needed to restore that relationship is for God to intervene. For, so, so God initiates. We must have God initiate, and that's exactly what he does. Even in the judgment of Genesis 3, him casting Adam and Eve out of the garden, we see his grace. We see a promise that one day he will make that right. One day the enemy will not win but that God will win in the end and bring people to himself back into a covenant relationship with him. There are two attributes that we've seen throughout this story of Scripture so far. Two attributes, many others, but, but two specifically that we've seen. We see it today, we see it in the weeks and months to come, and that is the nearness of God and the holiness of God. The truth is that, that God is present in this world and the truth that, 
that while he is present in this world, he is also magnificently holy and unstained by sin. Depending on a variety of factors, we each are tempted to view God in one of those lights more than other. So maybe we see God as holy and just and perfect and on high and enthroned in all glory. And yet at the same time, we, we imagine that God is far off. He's out of touch. He's a, he's a divine creator, but not a God who seeks relationship with his people. He only comes down when we do something wrong. And so we emphasize one attribute, but at the expense of the other. Or on the flip side, some of us are tempted to see the nearness of God, that he's everywhere in this world, that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he's present in this world with his people, not far off, not disconnected, not out of touch. But at the same time, maybe we discount his holiness and his majesty, so we're tempted to take our sin lightly. We use his incredible grace and as this excuse or license, if you will, to to have ongoing rebellion in our lives toward God and His Word. But one thing we see in the story of the tabernacle is both the nearness of God and the holiness of God, that He is both merciful and yet He will not leave the wicked unpunished. We see a God seeking to dwell with His people, and yet we see the holiness of God on grand display in the tabernacle. To be near a rebellious people will not diminish His holiness nor will he forsake his pursuit of people because of his holiness. He will not remain far off, nor will he forsake his holiness. In Exodus 25, the Lord says this to Moses. Verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted or fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. So the Lord asked Moses and the people of, of Israel to make him a sanctuary. And in Exodus 25, we see that the people were to bring specific items to contribute to the building of the tabernacle. And keep in mind, all of these items, nearly all of them, were probably still being carried from when they left Egypt. So they leave Egypt, they, they plunder their enemy's stuff. The Lord gives them these things to, to take with them in that exodus. These contributions were given to the Israelites by God's grace. So you can imagine that as they're bringing these items, it's this reminder to them that, oh yeah, God's been so faithful to us. God's been so faithful. He's been so good to us. He's so worthy of worship. And so they're bringing these contributions in a similar way. This is what we do in our offering in worship. When we, when we give generously and faithfully, it's this reminder to our hearts that ultimately God was the owner of this. God still is the owner of this, and he's called us to manage it. He's called us to steward it for his kingdom, store up treasure in heaven. And by his grace, he's given us these things. So by his grace, then we give them back to him for his kingdom's work. The purpose of the tabernacle, according to verse 8, was so that the Lord may dwell in their midst. The word tabernacle is simply an English rendition of a Hebrew word, that meant dwelling place. The Lord wanted to dwell with his people and he wanted the people to to prepare a place for that dwelling. 
I'd encourage you to read Exodus 25 through 40 and minus that golden calf story. Nearly all of that is details about the tabernacle itself. He's asking his people to, to not simply contribute something, but he's really specific about his contributions because his plans for the tabernacle are very, very specific. And all of that detail points to, to many things, but one of them is the beauty of our God, the splendor of God, the glory of God. This is to be the sanctuary where God himself is going to dwell in. So not just anything will do. This sanctuary is to be set apart so that when people encounter it, it would be the stunning and visual reminder of God's presence and God's glory and God's holiness and God's, God's majesty. The sanctuary was to reflect the one in whom will dwell in that sanctuary. Some of you have built homes before. Some of you have remodeled homes, remodeled rooms within your home to dwell in. All right, And here's what is true for anyone who has built a home, remodeled a home before, is that before that process began, you had some thoughts. You had some opinions. You had a vision of what you, what you were wanting. It, what, if you had a contractor, it wasn't like, I don't care what my kitchen or bathrooms look like. I, pick whatever paint color you want. I don't really care about the materials. I don't care. Just do whatever you want. You didn't do that. Nor if you were married and your husband was doing it, you didn't say, oh, honey, just do whatever you want. No, you're like, here's my Pinterest board. And here's... There's like a subcategory of a Pinterest board. You had more ideas than you could actually implement, right? You do. This is, this is your case. You have like living room board and living room paint board and all these different things, all right? It's very, very Pinteresting. Um, but uh, so why should it surprise us at all that with God, the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who, who just macro level set it all into motion, and yet the God who knows the number of hairs on your head, knows all those little details, and set atoms into motion, all those kinds of things, why should it surprise us that he's got some thoughts about what a sanctuary should look like? These are not suggestions. These are not opinions. In verse 9, you see that he wants these specifications to be followed exactly. And notice that it isn't that Moses is coming up with this idea. He's not giving Moses full reign here of, oh, Moses, just come up with a plan here. No, he says, Moses, here's my plan. You find people to implement this plan. God determines the plans and the details. Moses is simply to carry them out, to obey them. He is to lead the people to obey the word of the Lord. We are to worship God, not according to our ways. We don't set the, we don't set the standard of that. We worship God according to his ways. And so the tabernacle was basically this portable tent with a movable courtyard the courtyard was 150 feet uh, long, 75 feet wide. The fence that surrounded the courtyard was about seven and a half feet tall. The actual tabernacle uh, fence was, uh, I'm sorry, the actual tabernacle was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And for being movable and portable, the details of the tabernacle were exquisite. Here's a summary description that uh, one commentary has of the tabernacle. The court walls consisted of linen curtains attached by bronze hooks to a, to a series of pillars. The pillars were supported on the bottom by, brown, by bronze sockets, possibly held in place with rope that attached to bronze rings. The gate, always facing east, was about 30 feet of blue, purple, and scarlet woven into a curtain of linen. The altar of burnt offerings that the priests purified themselves sat in the courtyard. 
The actual tabernacle of Moses sat in the back of the courtyard. The sides and the back were made of gold-covered acacia boards, about 28 inches wide and 15 feet high. Each board had two tenons, which fit into silver sockets. Gold rings held five bars that ran the length of the boards, holding them tight. The east side was comprised of five pillars covered with a screen similar to that for the courtyard. The tent was divided into two rooms, the holy place where the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense sat, and then the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant was placed. And the ark held the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. The rooms were separated by a veil similar to the entry screen, embroidered with cherubim, and hung from four gold-covered acacia posts by gold clasps. The, the tabernacle of Moses was covered in layers, fine linen, a fabric made of goat's hair, a covering of ram's skin, and a final layer of waterproof hide. The linen covered the entire tent, the panels connected by latching loops into gold clasps. The curtain of goat's hair was connected with bronze clasps and, and hung over the sides and the back of the structure. And believe it or not, after hearing all of that, the tabernacle was surprisingly portable. The priests carried the Ark of the Covenant and the altar on their shoulder. But the rest of it was drawn by oxen in carts. Again, the tabernacle was this dwelling place for God. And so knowing there would be God's dwelling presence, that, that God's presence would be there, it would be a place where people would properly worship God and all that would take place. It makes sense for us that we'd find chapters in Exodus dedicated to the details because the details reveal and reflect the God behind them, the God that Israelites were to worship. For example, the closer you got from entrance courtyard to holy of holies, the more valuable the metals got. So you went from bronze to silver to gold as you got closer and closer. As this, like this visual reminder that as you got closer, oh, this is, this is God. It like, in a sense, lifted up your eyes as you got closer. Giving visual reminders of the holiness, the beauty, the, the grandeur, the, the royalty, the splendor of God. The tabernacle was the holy place, similar to how when, when Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus 3, the Lord said to him, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So God's presence made it holy ground. It caused that ground to be set apart. And in the same way, the tabernacle was set apart for worship as a holy place. So the building materials would reflect the holiness of God. And the tabernacle was built not just to display the holiness of God, but so that people could be near to the Lord. Ever since Genesis 3, we know that sin separates people from God. There's this separation. But we also know that God, ever since Genesis 3, has been pursuing people, desires that those people would be in relationship, in communion with Him. And in Exodus 29, we see the tabernacle will be a place of meeting between the people and the Lord. This would be a place where sin would be confessed and sin offerings would take place. We must keep in mind in Exodus that God brought them out of the slavery of Egypt, not to leave them, not to forsake them, not to say, oh, good luck now. No, it was to dwell with them and so that those people would dwell with him. Exodus 29, 45 and 46 say this. I, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And that is still God's heart and plan for people. 
that people would turn from their way of living, their, their selfish, their, their sinful way of thinking and living, and turn towards the living God and be in this covenant, life-giving, uh, eternity-changing relationship that God would know, that people would know who God is and they would be in this relationship with Him, trusting Him for their forgiveness, for their salvation. Is God the Lord of your life? Is He the one you're worshiping? Are you allowing Him to sometimes confront and challenge your way of thinking or living? Are you, are you trusting in His loving authority? Are you, are you coming under that? Are you allowing His Word to, to speak over you? Is He who you're resting in? Knowing that it's by His grace that you're saved, not by works. So yes, the Lord is holy. He is enthroned on high in splendor and majesty. He despises evil, sin, and wickedness. He opposes the proud, we're told. And because of that, He will not accept us on our own. He won't just enter into a relationship with people, with an unholy, sinful people. But through Christ, through the death and through the resurrection of the Son, that separation is, is removed. In Christ, we can find not only salvation and forgiveness, but we enter into a lifelong covenant relationship with a God who is forever faithful to us. A God who remains holy and powerful, and yet a God who is present with us, who comes near who desires to dwell with his people and who desires for us to dwell with him, to commune with him, not just on a Sunday morning, but as a way of life. And so we fast forward to the end of Exodus. We find ourselves in chapter 40. Almost a year has passed since the Exodus of Egypt. The sanctuary has been built according to God's ways and, and now God's presence comes to dwell in the tabernacle. Starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the climax of the story of the tabernacle. God's glory fills this place. And as the people journey and move to different places, the Lord's presence was with them, leading them, dwelling with them. Keep in mind, when they set up camp, what was the middle of the camp? It was the tabernacle. So tents would be set up, but the tabernacle would be dead center in the camp. So earlier in the story, the people grew impatient. When Moses was on the mountaintop, they grew impatient. They, they started to worship a golden calf. In that waiting, they turned idolatry. Now it's as if the Lord is, wants to make his presence so known to them in this very visual, direct way. Don't turn to idolatry. I'm going to be the center of this camp. I'm going to be the center of your lives. Don't look elsewhere. Don't worship other gods. Notice how the people stayed in step with the Lord. If the cloud was not taken up, they remained. If the cloud was taken up, they followed. They didn't lag behind. They didn't get out ahead. Don't we fight that, that temptation as Christ followers? Sometimes the Lord is saying, move, walk by faith, forsake that sin, let it go, turn from that idolatry. And we're like, mm, I don't know. I don't want to change. I'm comfortable. I like this sin. 
and we revert to small child and like, I don't know, right? This is what we do. And then other times the Lord is saying, remain, be faithful. Yes, walk by faith, live by faith, but that's going to lead you not to move. It's going to lead you to endure and persist and remain and continue to bloom where you're planted, if you will. But either way, the goal is not to get out ahead of the Spirit, trusting in your own wisdom, or lag behind like a stiff-necked Israelite. Isaiah 30, 21 and 22 say this, And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols, overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. As Christ followers, we have this incredible gift in the Bibles that are before us. God's written word that illuminates our path, the next steps we are to take. And so we must not neglect it because the Spirit is still at work. The Spirit is still leading. The Spirit is still directing. Romans eight fourteen tells us that the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. So the question is not if God is active and still leading. The question is, are we following and obeying? That's the question. Are we, are we trusting in his word? Are we trusting in his spirit? Are we getting before him in his word saying, Lord, change me. Encourage me. Rebuke me. Lead me. I want to trust in you. I don't want to trust in myself. And I love Isaiah 30, verse 22, because it reminds us that when we're led by the spirit, we'll reject idolatry. We'll say to this temptation to worship idols, be gone. Unclean, be gone. Galatians 5 speaks of walking by the Spirit, and it says this, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So you see this very stark contrast between being led by the Spirit and being led by sin and selfishness. It was this, uh, one is the way of, of the Christ follower and one is the way of the one who's rejecting Christ. The Lord's presence was with the Israelites. In a very visual, direct way, he's the center. He's the center of the camp. He wants to be the center of their nation, of their people. It was this reminder that that he was with them, and he wanted them to dwell with him. Then we fast forward to the New Testament, the book of John, the Christmas story. John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When it says dwelt there, it means it's the same idea as tabernacle. That God the Son came in the flesh to tabernacle among us. 
to dwell with us, to set up a tent. He took up residence. And in coming in the flesh, the Lord would not forsake his, his holiness. We have seen his glory, it says. He would still be blameless and spotless, altogether righteous, good, holy, and perfect. And yet he would also come near. He came in order to rescue the sinful, the broken, the lost, the proud. He came to seek and save that which was lost. That was his mission statement. The tabernacle of Moses points us to the New Testament. That one day the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come to dwell among his people, to tabernacle among his people. He would be holy, and yet he would come near. And so that through Christ we could have fellowship, communion, relationship, intimacy with our Creator God. And through Christ we can confess sin. Through Christ we could find forgiveness. Through Christ we could find new life, abundant joy, hope in suffering, hope of heaven. And just as God the Father plans, the Son dies, rises again on the third day, ascends to heaven, and then He pours out His Spirit to all who have repented and believed, to all who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, trust in Him for their salvation. And now, catch this, the believer in Christ is now the dwelling place for God's presence. It's no longer contained to a tabernacle. It's no longer contained to a church building. It's not in the middle of town. Now, it's scattered among God's people, seven days a week, wherever you go. And so we leave this place, we go into the world, and we manifest his presence to others in this world. We are many tabernacles, if you will, dwellings of the Holy Spirit sent into this world. This teaching is throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Or 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, uh, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk with them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 gives us this picture that not just individuals, but we do this corporately. Together is the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then, one glorious day, when Jesus returns again, we as God's people will dwell with the Lord in perfect harmony with no more tears, no more sin, no more separation, no more effects of a fallen world, no more effects of Genesis 3, but instead return back to God's original design of Genesis 1 and 2, where the Lord dwells with His people, and His people dwell with the Lord, and the glory of God shines like the sun, and where the Lord is holy, magnificent, and the Lord's people worship Him wholeheartedly, and yet are near to the Lord. So even though it's February 7th, it's not the month of December. Let me remind you, Crosspoint, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. The Word is, has become flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, full of a desire to be near to His creation, and full of a desire that we would be so captivated by His glory and His holiness that we would worship Him wholeheartedly. We're going to close with celebrating communion. If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 
we'd encourage you and invite you to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member of Crosspoint. The Bible says you do need to be a believer in Jesus Christ to take communion. If you're here, you're still exploring who Jesus is, but you would not confess him as Lord and Savior, we just encourage you to pass the elements on down the aisle. If the ushers want to come up now, begin to pass out trays. Uh, The bread and juice are on top of one another, so make sure you get both of those, both those elements, and we'll take those together afterwards as one body of Christ. But use this time as trays are passed, music's played. Use this time to confess sin, to thank God that he is both holy and near. Ask God to reveal to you where maybe you're lagging behind or getting out ahead of his Spirit's work. And we'll celebrate communion together as the body of Christ afterwards. So use this time to to talk to your Father in heaven. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Father God, thank you for sending your son to die for us, to, 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 to dwell with us, to live the perfect, sinless life, to die for us, to rise again on the third day, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering the grave, conquering the enemy's scheme, schemes. And thank you that he ascended to heaven and thank you that one day he's returning. Father, we want to stay in step with your Spirit. We want to see the fruit of the Spirit cultivated in our lives. We want to turn from our sinful desires and the things that would lead us away from you, the idols that we are tempted to to worship instead of you. We want to cast those aside and count them as unclean and unworthy of our time and our focus and our attention. Father God, help us to worship you not only in this next song, but just as a way of life this week. We want to hold you high. We want to exalt you. So thank you that you're holy, you're majestic, and that you are near to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and sing.
commissioned as many tabernacles to manifest the presence of God wherever you go, whether it's school, work, home, among your activities that you do, to live and speak the good news to those around you, to reflect his holiness, to be near to his people, near to the lost that he came to seek and save. You are commissioned. Meet somebody new before you leave. If you're a guest with us, fill out a guest connection card. We'd love for you to do that. God bless. Have a great week.